This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. When you air your opinions on the air every day, you're going to be wrong from time to time, in which case it pays to be careful about how you put your money where your mouth is. I mouthed off, I was too loose, too cocky, and you are making sure, you are making sure I can't weasel away and break my words. Also on the programme, we talked to a journalist who lifts the lid on online misinformation but became a target of some of it this past week. But first, fears that fringe parties might turn lots of Facebook followers fed on fake news into votes proved largely unfounded after the election last weekend. So do we really need to fret about the impact of misinformation in social media? Do you have any regrets? You've just been um, part of a political movement which has been peddling misinformation during the election campaign. Do you have any regrets? No, I think we were asking some hard questions about the direction of COVID-19. If you're asking about regrets throughout the whole three-year term, of course, we could have all done things a lot differently and a lot better. That was the leader of the Advance NZ party, Jamie Lee Ross, in a four-minute chat with News Hub political editor Tova O'Brien on Three's weekend politics show News Hub Nation the morning after the election. And that ended up going viral online because big names in the media overseas really enjoyed her confrontational and at times dismissive approach to a politician accused of capitalising on COVID-19 uncertainty. And when Tova O'Brien sensed that Jamie Lee Ross was winding up to air a little more COVID disinformation, she shut him down hard like this. You know exactly what you were doing. You were whipping up fear and hysteria among vulnerable communities. Not at all. If you go and look at the mortality rate of COVID-19 compared to other um, flu epidemics... I'm going to stop. No, I'm not, I don't, I don't so, want to so, hear. So, I don't want to hear any well, of. Totally, I don't want to hear any of that rubbish. Just, what are you? Give what are, me that and not allow me to answer. Well, that. if you're going to come on, if you're going to come on the show and say things which are just factually incorrect, I can do that actually. Tova O'Brien also accused Jamie Lee Ross of political opportunism for the way he hooked up with COVID conspiracist-turned-politician Belita Kahika Jr., who, like Jamie Lee Ross, also ended up electorally unsuccessful on the night. Why on earth did you get into bed with Belita Kahika? I could see that there was a lot of growth on social media. There was a lot of growth in the t- number of people coming so along and looking at it. purely political ambition. No, you I could sold see, your soul I for could, political I could, ambition. I could see that there was uh, people out there who were asking questions around things that I believe in too. And that was revealing. Jamie Lee Ross admitting that he was drawn to the Facebook following Billy Takahika had built up and fed a steady diet of misinformation to in posts and live videos. And during the campaign, Billy Takahika Jr. was also given a grilling about that on News Hub Nation. But you edited those words out of context. The, the bill that you're worried about is a framework for responding to COVID-19. It doesn't specify vaccination. Your video says New Zealanders are going to be forced to be vaccinated. Now, some critics complained that News Hub there had given him a platform and more than 12 minutes of the oxygen of publicity in the run-up to the election. But just two days from the end of polling, Facebook itself removed Advance NZ's page for repeated violations of its policy on misinformation. Billy Tikahika Jr. said he was horrified beyond belief at being deplatformed like that, while others asked what took Facebook so long to enforce its own long-standing terms and conditions. And on TVNZ's election night coverage last weekend, host John Campbell and Hilary Barry and their guest pundits made fun of that and his failure to turn Facebook followers into votes. Well, a nationwide Advance NZ got 19,579 votes. They would have got more, but 5G interfered with them. <laughs> I know. But they, and the tin but how, much, how much did we in the media talk about them? How much earned media did we give them? Oh, I know, cover. We I didn't know. cover them once. Look, they can commiserate <laughs> on their Facebook page. Oh, no, they can't. <laughs> um... <laughs> 
However, Advance NZ secured more than 20,000 votes in the end and they'll get some more when the special votes are tallied. Quite an achievement for a new political party. The ACT Party in 2017 got just over 13,000 party votes and that was its eighth election campaign. Now it's got 10 MPs out of 120 in the House. So a lot can change in three years. Now three years ago, worries about the political impact of online misinformation were only beginning to emerge here as people tried to make sense of the role it had played in the UK's Brexit vote and the 2016 US election won by Donald Trump. In subsequent elections in France and in Australia and elsewhere, it became clear that fake stuff and degrees of misinformation on social media was becoming part of the campaign strategy, even for established political parties. And at the start of this election year, Labour Party leader Jacinda Ardern cited all this when she pledged and pleaded for a clean campaign in 2020. But political parties here including her own, had to be prompted into signing up for the Facebook transparency tool, which reveals just how much parties spend on specific online ads, as well as how often, and which online users they're targeting with those ads. In the end, Labour, the Greens and ACT signed up before Facebook made it compulsory in mid-June. Now that it's all over, is all this really significant? Victoria University of Wellington professor Jack Vowles told a university podcast early in the election campaign social media messages from political parties were definitely reaching more potential voters. So much so that we've seen political parties transfer a lot of the resources they have available to campaign from television, which is declining in importance now, uh, to social media. And they're actually able to use the funds made available for broadcasting to use on social media instead. Well, since then, Victoria University of Wellington's political science department has coded and analysed thousands of Facebook posts placed by political parties and their leaders up until the polls closed last weekend. I asked the New Zealand social media study coordinator, Dr Mona Cruel, if they picked up a significant surge in false and negative stuff coming from our political players and if this had an impact. The amount of fake news and half-truth was actually pretty low, um, so we did not see any... Uh, see them repeating the presidential election in 2016 uh, in the US. Uh, so we don't have to fear about that uh, in New Zealand. Most of the parties did not post any fake news at all. We saw some half-truths, so which is not completely made-up content, but there is still some dodgy information. Yeah, for uh, for in example, that. there were a couple of uh, um, very simple graphic images which use bar charts yes. for, say, housing prices, the cost of yeah. houses, and when you look at them, clearly they're not statistically accurate for the percentage exactly. figures. Yeah. This is exactly what we've coded as half-truth. There was something about the economy, for example, New Zealanders trust in the economy, um, and there was a little lead for National on that, uh, who would uh, better be better at leading the economy, uh, economic recovery. And so it was 43% over 39 but the bar chart was half of uh, the one um, uh, of uh, National for Labour, and this is kind of misleading. It's not a fully made-up story, but there is still something wrong about that. Sure. And actual false claims, you said there weren't too many, but you're looking at political party sources. Uh, Do we know if there was more than three years ago or even the election before that? Mm -hmm. So um, I actually cannot say if uh, there was really an upswing uh, in false claims um, What we, because we haven't done this study in 2017, so it's a first for New Zealand. Um, but on the other hand, we know that the um, Advertising Standard Authority has received a lot more claims um, about that than it has in 2017. Um, so there is a chance that this is actually increasing. Okay, so in future elections, we might now have a kind of benchmark and we can yes, start looking exactly. at this. Well, as we heard earlier, you know, in the election night, 
people actually saying maybe we worry too much about advancing Z, Billy Kahika Jr. and his his followers and their online misinformation. Turned out they didn't, you know, end up affecting the outcome of the election at all, but they do have support. But were they by some distance, the worst offenders in terms of this uh, fake news and half-truths that you spoke about? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the media was actually right. Um, So they have observed that correctly. It shows, uh, we we see that quantitatively as well. So they were the worst offenders. Um, So for advanced New Zealand's, we had half-truth coded around 31% of their campaign communication. Uh, Fake news, 6%. Uh, Billy TK was lower, but that is not surprising because um, the parties, uh, so very often the leaders of the parties let the parties take the blame for that because it's a collective actor. You cannot that easily point the finger on someone in the party if the party is posting it and not the leader. So the other party that was doing that a lot uh, was actually the New Conservatives. There we have half-truth around 16% uh, and fake news uh, 3.7%. Um, but I think actually that... Facebook investigated advanced New Zealand was right uh, because a lot of lots of our data shows that most of their misinformation was around COVID-19. And if this becomes widespread, that would actually be life threatening. Um, so they picked them up uh, for the right reason. Um, but we should also not forget um, Judith Collins has had one little incident on fake news as well. She had um, that kind of selectively edited snippet from the, um, the TV debate uh, where Jacinda Ardern made a comment about farmers and it was edited in a way um, that it made Jacinda say something that she actually hadn't said. So this is something that we also coded at, as fake news, but it was a single Was that uh, her or incident. the party? That was her, actually. That was her, her site, uh, okay. her um, Facebook page. Yeah. yeah, there was a comment about farmers being from a world of the past when she was yes. talking about the attitude towards farmers, the public exactly. attitude of hostility, she thinks, was something. Yeah, yeah that's right. This is where the media comes in, right? We've seen fact-checking uh, initiatives, uh, for example, stuff the whole truth. Uh, they put uh, senior journalists on that. They pick an issue, look at a claim that had been made that was newsworthy and decide whether they thought it was justified or not. Um, the Australian news agency, AAP, for example, uh, was doing fact checks, which were then picked up by um, New Zealand media and websites where they would do a fairly thorough look at one particular issue and a claim made and decide whether they thought it was fair or not. Do you think from what you've been able to analyse that this is actually effective? So I think it's it's very welcome if the media does that. It means they're actually fulfilling uh, their role as a watchdog. And um, if politicians, they will get wind of that, that they are uh, fact-checked by the media very soon. And they uh, might fear um, a reputational damage, um, so they won't do it. Um, And so there is a chance uh, that this has an effect. More on the major parties than it actually has on the minor parties. A party like Advanced New Zealand, um, they might not care about that. Uh, They might even turn that uh, around strategically and say, like, um, these are the media elites. They are fighting us. We are the only ones who are still telling the truth and dare to say something and dare to speak up uh, in contrast to the others. Uh, And so they would kind of turn this attack against uh, them as an evidence um, of their uh, campaign um, against the elites. Yeah, Um, so if the people have low trust in media and in politicians mm -hmm. and politics, as some surveys show, then for them this actually enhances their credibility. This isn't really all about elections, right? If we're talking about the likes of Advanced New Zealand, Billy Kaika Jr., They're looking possibly past the election, kind of building a brand or something similar to that um, and maybe harvesting the loyalties of people that have this low trust. Um, Is this kind of sentiment, is this something we need to do not just when there's an election time on? 
it would be good to do it all the time, but I can tell you how much work it is. Um, so our coders had to fact check basically every number that the parties uh, put out. So it costs you a lot of money to follow up with that. But um, it would be um, very good if uh, the parties could be monitored the entire time. Um, I think what uh, governments need to push for is that also unpaid posts um, are monitored and not only paid posts to count as advertising. Um, they have to understand that social media is very fast. Um, faster that they can react. Um, we also probably have underestimated the amount of fake news and half-truth uh, because we did not want to accuse political actors just for having different political opinions. Um, and we just picked up what was very obvious and very explicit. Um, so the amount might be higher, but we took a very conservative approach of that to exactly not um, interfere with freedom of expression and having different political opinions because this is part of the political discourse. Do you think, just from what you've observed so far, that we need to change uh, the way they operate? Because there have been cases of inaccurate claims being made in political advertising on social media uh, which um, have not been removed. Um, I think overall the study shows that the regulations uh, around campaigning in New Zealand are working otherwise we would see much higher numbers of that um, so most parties uh, do not post any fake news and half-truth is below 10% for most parties so that actually shows um, that in this regulated campaign environment that we have in New Zealand where you have more opportunities uh, to complain about parties uh, that you have in many other countries, it is actually working so otherwise we would see different numbers the only two things um, I think we could improve on is first the unpaid posts that I mentioned before uh, that should um, be regulated more as well and the second thing is be faster um, because if these things are out for once people have seen them and not everyone uh, will later read somewhere that this was fake news what regulatory authorities have to understand these days is that the internet is super fast uh, and social media is super fast and once something is out it's out and so you have to take it down basically immediately um, and this needs a lot of uh, manpower behind that um, to kind of constantly monitor uh, these posts um, and maybe take them down. Dr Mona Cruel from Victoria University of Wellington's Political Science Department who's been researching the role the media play in election campaigns and the effect of social media on voters in electoral contests. As we heard from Dr Mona Cruel there, tracking misinformation and fake news is not just important when there's an election on. And one local journalist who certainly takes online misinformation seriously is David Farrier. We heard from him here on Media Watch back in August about how millions of people here and overseas have been seduced into believing conspiracy theories spreading online, no matter how outlandish and absurd they might seem. And this week, David Farrier became a target of some online fake news himself, which was amplified by a major news outlet here, as Hayden Donnell now reports. On Monday, News Hub's website carried what seemed to be a standard outrage-baiting story about a New Zealand man selling gollywog dolls. The seller, who identified himself as James Harrington, served up a couple of provocative quotes, telling the website, The internet is full of political correctness and snowflake millennials, and asking rhetorically if having Chinese food for lunch also makes him racist. That met a predictable response. There were snarky tweets and angry Facebook comments, another average day on the World Wide Web. But there was something a little strange about James Harrington's gollywog website. Alongside the images of his racist wares were pictures of the journalist David Farrier, who investigates strange internet goings-on and the toxic side of social media through his blog Webworm. 
It seems strange that Ferrier was suddenly part of a gollywog sailing operation. I asked him what was really going on. Kia ora, Dave, and welcome to Media Watch. Uh, thanks for having me. So can we start at the start? How did you first get introduced to the man known as James Harrington? Yeah, so I came across James Harrington when I was writing a story about an Instagram influencer who was hawking these COVID face masks. And I was sort of writing critically about the influencer at the time, but I ended up looking at where these face masks were coming from. And they were being sold on a website uh, that was a dropshipping website. So basically it's like a storefront that's set up. You go there, there's like nice mask designs, you pay $20, whatever you pay for them, you're actually getting these incredibly cheap masks from China, and which is perfectly fine. It's a business that a lot of people do. But I found out that a number of these masks weren't making it to people. And there are a lot of people angry that they're paid, you know, $300 for these masks and they would got nothing. And so I looked into who it was and the guy behind it, um, James Harrington, that's one of his aliases. He is someone that I, I suppose I annoyed because I wrote about the fact his masks weren't showing up. And I also kind of associated him with a prior kind of scam he had done where he'd been illegally streaming some boxing matches and had made Sky TV really angry. So essentially he's a professional troll that I kind of accidentally poked and he is now unleashing his rage upon me in a variety of creative ways. So just to be clear, back then when you wrote this story, his name wasn't James Harrington, though, was it? It was James Bryant. No, it was James Bryant. And that's when I kind of went, oh, OK, so who am I dealing with? You know, this is James Bryant, James Harrington. Are they the same person? And when I started writing about this guy, I started getting a number of emails from a whole lot of different names. And they're all very strange and sort of vitriolic and clearly the same person. Was he always going by an alias? Was he going by James Bryant? He was originally quoted in the News Hub story as selling the masks, which were using government branding. So they were also there was controversy around the mask selling. He was James Harrington then. Uh, the James Bryant thing just came from a bunch of internet sleuthing and finding out that, hey, it's the same guy. So James got annoyed at you and then things have spiralled from there, right? So what's actually taken place? From there, it sort of led to him creating a number of internet um, personas that would email me various sort of homophobic emails. It escalated from there to him physically turning up at my old workplace to see me, demanding to see me. And then when I wasn't there, because I don't work there anymore, he left a note saying basically, yeah, you know, it was a, th- a threatening note. Uh, and since then, there's been different personas will still email me and get in touch. He's someone that's very good at manipulating people. You know, he's someone that would have you know, he, he's a man in his 30s who is sort of living the life of an 11-year-old that's just found the internet and discovered that, oh, I can pretend to be different people. When did you see Monday's News Hub story about gollywogs? Yeah, well, I started getting a bunch of messages and texts and direct messages saying, are you, do you, are you aware that you're on a website marketing gollywogs? And I was like, no, what are you talking about? And... 
I went to the website, and sure enough, the main banner of the page is a big, giant gollywog, which is a, a very offensive toy, and my face, sort of the same size, and it essentially looked like I was marketing the gollywog. So essentially, I saw this banner there at the top of the page, and then I was curious about, you know, why were so many people getting in touch with me about this? Why had it, why was everyone suddenly discovering this gollywog site? And that's when I found there was a new story on a prominent website about it. So that was News Hub, and you immediately read the News Hub story and you thought, this is the same guy from Mars.co, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and just just to be clear, what evidence did you have for that assumption? Uh, well, essentially, it was James Harrington being quoted in that story about the gollywogs. It was the same James Harrington that was quoted in the mask story. I knew that James Harrington by this point was an alias of James Bryant. And it was the same kind of baiting comments that he had. And if you go into the registrant details of the website, again, it all leads back to James Bryant. So have you asked NewsHub to take the story down? NewsHub is aware that the story exists. Uh, I believe a they originally linked through to the website that was selling gollywogs, and that link is now being removed. But the story is still up there about the outrage about gollywogs. Uh, you know, the tweet is still out there as we're recording this. And it's just it's frustrating because the only reason that website was created was to harass me. The purely the only reason this person wanted a news story about it was so that people would go to the website and see my big ugly face next to a gollywog. Yeah. So it's it's I think a case where you know, this is a person that's really good at playing the media. He's done it before to get attention for things. He did the same thing with his face masks, and it's just happening all over again. Is it kind of good enough from News Hub, though? Surely there's a little bit of shame at helping a guy who is really only doing this to harass you. Uh, I would think with an example like this where I've clearly, you know, I wrote a piece today clearly outlining the origin of it. I've now seen the emails from fake aliases that James made up with fake outrage, which got the story kind of fired up in the first place. So it's so obviously planted by him. It's not the greatest bit of journalism. I don't think anyone's going to miss this story about a gollywog website that went up. And yeah, I hope it is removed because, you know, for this internet troll, it's just another win for them. And, you know, they'll be loving it. This could have happened at just about any news site, right? Just especially ones that are just doing the news churn. Is it, does it show how easy it is for bad actors to game that system? Yeah, absolutely. And there are people doing this all the time. And it's that situation where even if there aren't bad actors, even if it's just a news website covering something controversial, I think there's a danger that you play into their hands just by covering it. It's that thing of any publicity is good publicity. I don't love embracing cynicism, but I think newsrooms could be a little bit more critical and cynical about this stuff. Yeah, what could you do, though? This is this is essentially what James did, right? This was an email that said, I'm a person of colour, I hate this website. Uh, what, what could they have done to verify that? Uh, I think they could get on the phone with them and find out that this is not a female they're speaking to. It's a male who isn't in Auckland where they claim to be. It's it's that thing of not trusting a tweet or an email or a bit of digital communication and all and that comes verification back to all sorts stuff. of things, right? Like the, 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 the level of resourcing in newsrooms, the time pressures that yeah. journalists are under, all this sort of stuff. But I think it comes back to that bigger question as well of like, is this story worth covering? Totally. I guess maybe newsrooms need a policy when it comes to 
basically controversy baiting because this has been a standard tactic on the internet for so long. You have people like Stephen Molyneux, Lauren Southern, who tried to tour here. They were experts at it, right? You just say an outrageous thing and you get the engagement from the people who believe it and the people who are angry at it. I would love to see a situation where there is a policy in place about covering, you know, bad actors and people that purely gain an income via publicity and just to think a little bit about bringing them on the show and giving them FaceTime and airtime when essentially, like, when was the last time you heard from those two? Like, it, it's great not hearing from them and it all disappears. It's And it's that thing of... Because they were taken off social media yeah, and they lost their Yeah, but they made the news. Yeah. It's like, it's when the news makes the news and it's like just in talking about them and someone like Sean Plunkett getting them on the show and then getting people talking about it, suddenly a story that doesn't have those news values suddenly does because it's drummed up so much attention just by being given the platform in the first place. Zooming back in, your personal situation, you have Mm. essentially got a situation on your hands where someone is, I guess, trying to harass you. What options do you have available to you to stop that from happening? Are there legal avenues? Yeah, so there's, you know, obviously the New Zealand police can get involved with something like this. I mean, something else his character has done, has he's turned up in an old workplace of mine and left threatening notes. So he's physically turning up in off-the-internet situations in my life. So, you know, I, police is a recourse. Uh, the Harmful Digital Communications Act is also something that can be chased up. Um, NetSafe is always good to check in with this kind of stuff. But the the tricky thing with digital harassment is keeping a record of it at the time. And because it's online, stuff disappears really easily. The websites harassing me last week will probably be gone this week. There'll be new ones. And so I think you're NetSafe and in certain cases the New Zealand police are probably two avenues that could be could be taken. So well, good luck. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Following that interview, News Hub put out a statement. It read, This story has been amended to say that the website was taken down following claims that it was a hoax. Now, David Farrier has released his own statement in response to that. It reads, This is not a claim. It's a cold, hard fact. By leaving this story up, you are actively participating in harassment against me. Hayden Donnell reporting there on the strange story of a hoax that made news for NewsHub this week and also targeted David Farrier, a journalist who lifts the lid on hoaxes, fake news, misinformation and trolling online in his blog and online newsletter Webworm. Now, as we heard there in that chat with Hayden, David Farrier challenged that story about gollywogs supposedly on sale online here. And in a further footnote to all this, the original story about that vanished from the NewsHub website late on Friday. Now, when you air your opinions on the air every day, you're going to be wrong from time to time, in which case it pays to be pretty careful about how you put your money where your mouth is. Hayden Donnell's back again now with a big-name broadcaster who made a big call that came back to haunt him this past week. In the heady days of the 2005 general election campaign, Green MP Keith Locke made a promise he would live to regret. He said if ACT leader Rodney Hyde won Epsom, he would run through the streets of the electorate naked. Of course, Rodney Hyde did win Epsom. Keith Locke was forced to stick to his word, at least as best he could within the boundaries of New Zealand law and common decency. He walked down Broadway on a Sunday afternoon, clothed only in body paint and a G-string. 
Since then, most New Zealand politicians and pundits have been reticent to put their bodies on the line in support of their pre-election predictions, at least until this moment. Sure, it looks like a one-horse race right now, but I also know that history shows things really do tighten up closer to the election. They usually always do. In fact, I'm so confident that Labour won't poll this high on the night or even high enough to govern alone that if I'm wrong and if either happens, I promise to become a vegan for a year only. When Duncan Garner made that promise in July, NewsHub's Read Research poll was showing Labour on 60.9% support. Fast forward to election night. The results are being counted. Labour supporters are overjoyed at their preferred party being able to govern alone. And on social media, another subplot is playing out. People are calling for Duncan Garner to keep his promises. This week, the AM show's host conceded to the people holding him to account and said he would be going vegan for a year. Where it all went wrong... So I wrote an editorial. This was back in, what was the date, July... I'd actually forgotten about that um, pledge. Now that it's been pointed out to me, uh, and I've started my vegan journey. This was part of an editorial that I do at 6.30 every day. And I wrote this, I scripted this, there's no way that this will happen again because I can tell you if it does, then I'll become a vegan whatever I said. So I was confident that Labour would never hit 60% and that it looked unlikely to me that Labour was going to govern alone. Who knows what was happening with COVID at the time. So there we go. So, yeah, I, I, I got it wildly wrong, and um, I don't think there's, yeah, there's a shame. But you can't sit here every day and, or, you know, for every year for the last 20-odd years and, and, and be a guy that holds people to account and demands things of others. If you're going to go and, at the first opportunity, ignore a pledge or promise that you make yourself. You're, you're absolutely right, and, and it's commendable that you have uh, kept to your word. Now, the, the people and, that held course, you to account, I mean, you, you have to respect that, right? Oh, I think it's impressive. Uh, one, one that they care enough to remember what I said. Two that they actually remember what I said. Three that they rang in, emailed in, marched towards the company's head office uh, to demand that I be stripped and publicly paraded. <laughs> as a, as a, a journalist and as a citizen, who I often bemoan the apathetic approach at times of New Zealanders towards issues. I was impressed with their, their civic duty of um, throwing me under the bus and onto the fire. So I guess it's like this, like talk show hosts like you are required to come up with a forthright opinion every day and sometimes more than one. As you're writing these editorials, are you just thinking to yourself, look, I can't possibly be right, but I just have to be, I have to be strong? I mean, I, I actually pride myself on um, being as accurate as I can be in my, in my journalism. And I would write opinion pieces based on the facts that are in the market at the time, if you know what I mean. So oh, I have, I've written opinion pieces for years for... Um, um, starting at Dominion Post for, for News Hub, there will always be times where you get it wrong. You can't be 100% right. In your organisation that you're working for right now, there will be people that are 100% wrong, but you won't go and highlight that because you won't go and highlight that. There will be other parts where I've been wrong in life and that you won't go and highlight that because you're less interested in that. This time, it's quite a high-profile event, but journalists who think that they're never wrong are journalists who simply aren't worth listening to because they're not living in the reality. Do you ever regret it, getting it wrong? No. Do you ever, even now? No. No, it's, it's opened up another opportunity to share <laughs> something else I don't know about. There's veganism yeah. now. It is also okay to have a few predictions 
And if you don't get it wrong, you take it in your stride, you smile and you have a laugh and, and, and you go with it. Not everything has to be the end of the world or the sky falling in, you know. Everyone makes predictions. Will you be more reticent in your opinions and your predictions in future? If you're asking me, will I become more bland and boring, no. Will you keep making promises like this one? Promises that my body can't cash? Mm. Well, given your interview today, mm. I might spend a little bit more time on it next time, knowing that you'd call me and have a chat on Media Watch. Hayden Donnell there talking to the AM show host Duncan Garner, who, as we heard, will be a vegan at least until mid-October 2021, if he keeps that promise. And finally on Media Watch this weekend, well this week you will have seen in the news lots of reports about cheerful, enthusiastic, newly elected first term MPs having their introduction to life at Parliament, where they'll be spending a lot of time in the next three years, all being well. And with so many newbies in the House this time, several pundits have pointed out that without self-discipline and a fair bit of party oversight and whipping, some of them could fall foul of the no-surprises culture that their leaders and seniors prefer these days. And the media will, of course, seize on any examples of MPs going rogue or off-message. Here's how lobbyist Trish Sherson put it on Nine to Noon's Politics Chat this week. Uh, so I think that is a starting point, and I heard recently a an interview actually about uh, what makes fantastic sports teams and there's been a a value in the last few years brought in which is not a dickhead. That is one of the key values and I think that would be fantastic for now. Now no MP, junior or not, would want to be told that people think they're a dickhead even if it's behind closed doors. But is it okay for the media to do that? Way back when Simon Bridges was National Party leader before last, last May, News Hub political editor Tova O'Brien described him as despised by voters after a News Hub read research poll. Reporting the results for preferred Prime Minister, they also published a word cloud of people's responses when asked to sum up Simon Bridges in one word. Those words weren't very positive and prominently displayed in an on-screen graphic were terms like incompetent and dickhead. Now that's a bit rude obviously and not really fair either. It simply isn't possible to sum up how you feel about a public figure in one word, let alone whether you might support them or their party politically in spite of how you feel about the leader personally. And one viewer subsequently complained to the Broadcasting Standards Authority that it was actually indecent and that political debate should not be about this sort of undignified name-calling. So, is it okay for a media outlet to amplify that sort of personal judgment? In its recently released decision, six months on, the Broadcasting Standards Watchdog considered that news programmes often contain disturbing or confronting material, and the word dickhead appearing in the word cloud was not spoken or dwelled upon by the reporter. The inclusion of the word dickhead as part of a graphic, said the authority, was unlikely to be unacceptable to a significant number of viewers. And the authority said its research on language that may offend in broadcasting did not feature the word dickhead. For the record, the word dick ranked 26th out of 31 tested for offensiveness, though. So, not quite a green light for reporters and editors to call politicians a dickhead, though there's nothing to stop them evidently from letting the nation know if that's what some members of the public tell them. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but the Media Watch team will be back with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night on The Lately Show with Karen Hay, and then back again for more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.